Well, go ahead and grab your Bible, open to the last chapter in the book of Malachi. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is a black hardback around you. And uh, again, if you, if you don't own a Bible, I invite you to take that one home with you as our gift to you. Uh, the only thing is, if you do that, you are promising to read it. And so we, we want you to take that, to read it, to let God's Word sink into your mind, to your heart. And it is on page 754 of that hardback Bible. There's only six verses in this short little chapter in the book of Malachi. And I've titled today's message, Step into the sunlight. Step into the sunlight. Interestingly enough, um, the prayer in which we've just prayed and two songs ago in which we just sung are quite relevant to this fourth chapter here in Malachi. And this text that we have in front of us today, it is, it is fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ into this world, but there's also a larger fulfillment, a more perfect fulfillment in His second coming, a, a grander, if you will, fulfillment in His second coming. So we see here in this chapter, in the first verse, and we'll see really back into chapter 3 even, that there is condemnation for the wicked, and in verse 1 we see that the wicked are going to be thrown into the oven, and those that fear the Lord are going to be stepping into the sunlight. So there's this, this picture that is being painted here for us. And so go ahead and, and prepare your mind, prepare your heart to, to see it in those terms. Now, the book of Malachi, I think it is like a resounding gong to the people of Israel in that they are going to hear for the next 400 to 450 years this same sound, this same word from God. Malachi is that last Old Testament prophet and it is placed here at the end of the Old Testament in, I think, this purpose to be this resounding gong for the people of Israel to be reminded that they should be living humbly before the Lord and that humility, it shows itself in a lifestyle of repentance. Humility shows itself in a lifestyle of repentance. They should be living a life that displays what it means to be a child of God. And then this is quite relevant for us, isn't it? Because we would say that we are the children of God. If we have repented and trusted in Him, then we would say that we are His children. So what we hear from the book of Malachi is quite relevant for us in the attitude in which we should have, a lifestyle in which we should have, should be one of humility, and it should be displaying what does it truly mean to be a child of God. Now, I, I do believe that God's people should be some of the happiest people on the planet. We should be. Do we act that way? Not always. Maybe not usually. We are going to find here in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, reasons why you should be the happiest people on the planet. Why you should be so happy. The end of this prophecy ends with great news for the true children of God. Really, really good news. Great news. But as I mentioned before, the book also ends with the wicked being thrown into the oven, burned up, consumed, but we see the righteous, they are in the sunlight. Now, there are some who believe themselves to be the children of God, but they are gravely mistaken, and we see this happen here in Malachi 4 as we see it happen in today's world, in today's church 
is that we have people that believe themselves to be children of God, but the evidence that is there points to something else. They do not belong to Him. They are not His. We have two groups that have been discussed and will be discussed again. There are not 300 groups. There are not three groups. There are only two. We have the wicked. We have the righteous. And as I said last week, one of the most important questions you need to answer, everybody needs to answer, is the question of which group am I in? Am I in the group of the wicked or am I in the group of the righteous? Chapter 4, it ends with an emphasis again on this kind of question, this kind of idea, and it gives us even a little bit more in understanding of how do I know which one am I in? Well, there's some more evidence that we find here. Let's read these six verses, and we'll kind of walk back through them. Look at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, don't forget about chapter 3 as we think through this. In your English Bible, it has been put together as a different chapter, but again, whenever these were written, they were not written with chapters or verses. And so if you, if you want to think of it in this way, is not verses 1 through 6, but verses 19 through 24 connected to chapter 3, because the same kind of ideas that we find in chapter 3 then flow right into chapter 4, and it's all connected. All of the whole prophecy is connected. All of it is, is driving at one big theme for us to, to remember, to, to really understand. So the ending of 3, we have a, a transition that's happening from the condemning of the arrogant, of the prideful people. Then we see in verse 16, the ending there, moving to the righteous and focusing on the righteous. So really for the first three chapters, we have seen the condemning of the wicked, and then the very end of chapter 3, and here now in chapter 4, we see the people of God, those that really fear God, those that are really the children of God. These are the ones being brought to the forefront, and those that are going to be really uh, finding joy in what the prophet has to say. Now, at the end of chapter 3, into chapter 4, we, we find that these righteous ones are the ones that are written in verse 16 in this book of remembrance. There is a guarantee of these people that they will be rewarded for their good and what they have done and their pursuit of righteousness and holiness. And the last three verses should really be, I think, a comfort to those that fear the Lord and desire to honor them with their lives because of the promise that we find in the last three verses of chapter 3. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, it describes the coming day. The coming day of who? The Lord. The Lord. But in verse 1, it's described as a day of destruction, a day of judgment, 
Well, who is this for? It is for the wicked, as verse 1 tells us. It then gives some explanation as to who are these people? Who are these wicked ones that will be destroyed? How does it identify them? Well, it identifies them in two different ways, as arrogant and then all evildoers. These are the ones that will be destroyed. These are the ones that will be thrown into the oven. Now, if you're wondering if you would fit into one of those two categories of the wicked, well, let let me help you discern that here. The arrogant, that idea of arrogant, a modern definition of arrogant would be this, having a sense of superiority, self-importance, or entitlement. Isn't that what has been described to us about the people of Israel and the priest of Israel? That kind of mentality, that kind of attitude, we have seen the priesthood and the people reject any sort of accusation about them, about their behaviors, about their attitudes. Is this how you respond when people bring something up to you about you? Do you quickly find fault in them and then use that fault that you found in them to dismiss the claim that has been brought against you? This is what the arrogant do. Those that are arrogant, they have a massive blind spot, and this blind spot is pointed out whenever you dismiss anyone that has brought something to your attention as a sinful thing. This blind spot is highlighted, but they don't see it, and that's why we call them blind spots. And so here, Malachi is presenting a huge blind spot to the priest, to the people, but they're wicked in their heart, and they are arrogant in their heart, and they will not hear What is being said? The righteous, they will see these things, they will hear these things, they will repent of these things, but the arrogant will not. A quote I came across this week about the arrogant is this, arrogance is weakness disguised as strength. Arrogance is weakness disguised as strength. It's camouflaged. It's hidden. This is what we have with the people of Israel. And they're boasting about not having violated God's law and the accusations that God has brought to them, that Malachi is bringing to them. They, they dismiss these things. They say, no, we haven't been unfaithful. It's God that's been unfaithful to us. They're disguising their weakness. They're trying to act as though they have been strong. They believe themselves to be really strong. And really what this is is that they are really insecure. Spiritual pride is the most dangerous kind of pride a person can have. It will, always, it will always lead to a destruction of earthly relationships, and it will prevent you from having a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father. This is what spiritual pride will do. The, the famous genius Albert Einstein says this, the only thing more dangerous than ignorance is arrogance. The only thing more dangerous than ignorance is arrogance. This is what we have with these people. They they were so arrogant against God, against his prophet, against his word. They were not just ignorant of it. They were arrogant. In the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who are those that God will welcome? Who are those that God will will bring into His presence? The humble. What will He do with those that are proud, those that are arrogant? I think of it in football terms. It's a hard stiff arm. Nope. I have nothing to do with you. 
God opposes the proud, resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is, this is the distinguishing mark between the arrogant, the evildoer, and the righteous. The righteous are humble. The second descriptor of these two, of who will be destroyed, they are labeled as those that do wickedness or, as the ESV calls them, the evildoers. No matter the translation, you can go back to the Hebrew, and, and what you discover through the Hebrew is the idea of these are ones that practiced sin. Their lifestyle was sinful. Their lifestyle was full of sin. Now, before you get in your mind the worst quote-unquote, worst kind of individual, the worst kind of sin, let me correct your understanding by using Malachi's definition of what evil is. What is an evildoer? Well, what we've seen through the book of Malachi is the priest. The priest have been labeled as being evil. These were men who did all of the right processes. They did all of the things at the right time. But what was their problem? They did not have a right heart. So listen carefully, so what if you come to church? So what if you've been a member of this church your whole life? So what if you've been a leader in this church? So what if you've been to seminary? So what if you read your Bible every single day and you pray and you do all of the other Christian exercises? So what? None of that matters if you have a heart that is hardened toward God. None of it matters. You might know a whole lot of stuff about God, but you do not know Him. You have a lot of statistics about Him. You can answer all kinds of Bible questions about Him, but you do not know Him. The most religious people on the planet, most of them likely are going to hell. Why? They do not know the one true God personally. They are arrogant. They're prideful. And you say, no, they're, they're so humble. Look at, look at all the things that they do. Look at all the exercise that they perform before their God. The problem is they don't know the one true God, and they don't want to know the one true God because they are arrogant and they're evil doers. They pursue some other God, some other practice, They're not humble in heart. The heart is the problem. The heart is the distinguishing mark between the evildoer and the righteous. It's the heart, your heart. The arrogant, the evildoers, they were were referred to here in verse 1 as what? Stubble. Stubble. This is the part of the harvest that was completely worthless. All it was good for was to be burned And the arrogant believe themselves to be important, to be entitled, but there's a rude awakening coming for these people. They're going to be thrown into the fire. Another interesting point from verse 1 is that there is a a promise to let nothing remain of them. Look at verse 1. It says, neither root or branch root or branch, which is likely meaning that there's not going to be any kind of offspring or legacy left behind from these people. The wicked will be destroyed. And it's this idea of total removal of these people, just like chapter 1 described the Edomites. 
Where are they today, Israel? Historically, they were gone. They had been wiped out. Who did this? God did this. He he removed them, destroyed them from existence. This is the promise that God gives here in in verse 1. This is what's going to happen to the wicked. This is what's going to happen to those that are prideful, that are arrogant. Then we get verse 2. Again, a hard transition. In the English, it starts with the word but. At least the ESV it does. But, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So verse 2, it directs our attention to a different group. So verse 1, here's what's going to happen to the evildoer, to the wicked, to the arrogant, to the prideful people. This is what's going to happen to them. Now, verse 2, you... You who are righteous, and why are you righteous? Well, because you're in right standing with God. How has that happened? Only through the work of Jesus Christ. So why are they in this right standing with God? Well, it it indicates that they fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. Now, this fear of the Lord, the fear of God, as we see all throughout the Bible and as it's taught throughout the Bible, What does this mean? Well, there's kind of two things that we have to keep in balance with each other as we think about this. And so fear in the Lord has a couple parts to it, just two that I've came up with for you this morning, is one being that there's a real sense of impending fear, of impending danger. God is dangerous. He's dangerous if you are not holy. If you are not pure before God, He is very, very dangerous. And so there should be a sense in us, as we think about fearing the Lord, that there's this this sense in us of impending danger as we think about Him, as we approach Him. But then the second thing is also true, that we should respect and give reverence. This is also connected to the idea of love for Him. I respect Him, I revere Him, I, I love Him. And so into thinking about fearing the Lord, it's both of these things at the same time. It's not one or the other. It's both of them that we have to think of fearing the Lord. And so these people are ones that are referred to having this kind of attitude, this kind of mentality, and both of these are coming from a place of humility. They're humble. These who fear the Lord, they are given this metaphor of the sun. And the sun is comfort for them. It says there in verse 2 that the sun of righteousness shall shine with healing in its wings. Well, let's go ahead and get the obvious out of the way. The sun does not have wings, correct? Or at least that we've discovered. It doesn't have wings as like a bird or an airplane, but in this ancient culture, they constantly referred to the sun as being a disc that had wings. So, so it's contextualization, if you will, to people's understanding of what, what is being talked about here. The sun, sunlight, the point that's being made here is that our existence is because of the Lord, and our thoughts about Him should be that He is central to all things, the centrality of God. This picture of the Lord being the Son should give, I think, a great encouragement to those that fear the Lord. Let me give you four things I think that we, we can relate to God being the Son. 
not as God being the Son, but is a picture that we have painted before us. And this is what Malachi is doing here. The first thing I think that we are shown to be an encouragement here about God and His centrality of all things is that He is the source of the system of grace. The source of the system of grace. Now, when you read the Old Testament, we, we treat the system that God had established in the Old Testament as merely sacrificial, a sacrificial system that looks a lot like other nations. The problem with that is that it is not like other nations because he is not like other gods. And the reality that we have of this Old Testament system is that it still is a system of grace. God established a system of sacrifices, but it's connected intimately to grace, His grace. None of the animals that were sacrificed were ever going to be able to remove the set-in stains of sin for the people. It was never going to happen. And so whenever we, we hear back to chapter 1 and how God talks about these sacrifices being brought to Him, He says, just shut the doors to the temple. Just shut the doors. Like, I don't even, I don't even want this stuff from you. It wasn't because these sacrifices were accomplishing what they thought they were accomplishing. Again, it was a matter of the heart, and God is graciously delaying His wrath from these people by using this as a picture of His grace, using these sacrifices that He would overlook the sins of the people for a time. He then sends His Son, Jesus, into the world, again, 400, 450 years from the time of Malachi, to be the final atoning sacrifice for sin, the only sacrifice that would be able to remove sin completely, fully, eternally, which was all an act of great, amazing grace. So, He is the source of grace. He is the source of salvation, and He is the one in which we trust that we will not be thrown into the oven like the wicked. He is our hope. The second thing I think we, we can relate to in, in thinking about God being the Son, thinking that this representation that we have here in this text, He is the source of all righteousness or good. He is the source of all things good, all things righteous. Why? Well, He is good. Psalm. Psalms 145.17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. His works come from His nature, His heart, His desire, which is good, which is righteous. And so all the accusations against God by the people, by the priest, they're completely false. They're completely unjustified. God has been extremely patient with them, and He is extremely patient with us. We act the same way that these people did. We make the same kind of silly accusations against God, and He is so patient with us. I love that word, long-suffering. He's long-suffering with us. You likely will not see really how good God really is. Until you look back at the situation that you find yourself in today, maybe a year, two years, ten years, however long you might live, look back and go, wow, he was so much better to me than, than what I thought. He has been so patient with me. Why? Because he is good. He is righteous. He is the source of this. 
Again, the accusations being made against him is that, no, he, he's, he's the source of evil. He's not good to us. He's not patient with us. He seems to be more patient with the evil, with the, with the wrongdoers, with these that are getting away with things, but not with us. A complete misunderstanding of who God is. Third thing, he is the source of consistency. Go back to chapter 3, verse 6. What does it tell us? He does not change. He does not change. The sun comes up and goes down every day. It's consistent. And so this picture that is being painted here before us about about the sun, the sun's going to rise on the righteous, it's this idea of consistency, the consistency of God. He does not change. He is unchangeable. Why can we trust Him and trust that He tells us the, the truth? Well, because it's a fact, a fact like the sun coming up, going down. He is consistent. Why do the laws of nature and the laws of physics work? Because of God. It is because of Him. He is consistent. Why will the wicked be punished? Why will the righteous be saved? Because of this idea of His immutability or His unchangeable nature, because He is consistent. And He has been consistent since when? Forever. Always. Eternally. He is forever the same. Now, maybe you're in a place right now, and and I I mean, possibly physically, but I don't think so, because you got here this morning in the sunlight, but spiritually speaking, that you're in a place right now where the sun seems to have set, and seems that there's just nothing but pure darkness, please remember this fact about God, that He is consistent He is consistent, and there will be a rising of the sun. There will be the darkness lifted. The darkness will retreat. It will run because the darkness will never remain. Our hope is coming. Our salvation is coming. And this is what we have at the end of chapter 4, a hope-filled message to the righteous. The fourth thing I think we find here in the idea of Uh, God being represented by the Son, is that He is the source of our healing. He's the source of our healing. As as it even says, that it brings healing in its wings. A book that I was reading this week, it told the story of a man named uh, Sir James Wiley. And it says this, Sir James Wiley, late physician to to the emperor of Russia, attentively studied the effects of light as a curative agent in the hospital of St. Petersburg, and he discovered that the number of patients who were cured in rooms properly lighted was four times that of those confined in dark rooms. Four times. The ailments of your soul will only be cured by exposure to the sunlight of the Son of God. Are you struggling to see any kind of hope, any kind of future? Is that where you're at? Is that the sun has set, that is just darkness that has set in? I would say to you, step into the sunlight. Is your soul sick with sin? Step into the sunlight. Now, what does this mean to step into the sunlight? I mean, that, that sounds nice, Pastor, but practically speaking, what, what does that even mean? Well, the, the answer is nothing new. 
It's a very old answer. It's one that you, you know already, which is so true of the people here that Malachi is talking to. They already know the answers, but they're not doing the answers. We see this in verse 4. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So remember what God has said. Do what he has told you to do. Step into the sunlight. Well, what does this mean? What What does this look like for you? Well, practically speaking, it means that you need to be actively engaging your mind and your heart in the word of God. Step into a time where you are reading the Bible. Spend time in that sunlight. Spend time memorizing the Bible. Not just, well, I remember where my Bible is, but you remember the Bible. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. You've memorized it. Spend time talking about the Bible with whoever will listen. Spend time praying. Praying what? If you're struggling, start with praying God's Word. Start with the Psalms. Start with the Proverbs. Start with Genesis. I I don't really care. Start somewhere in God's Word. Pray through His Word because you can't get those words wrong. Pray the Scriptures. And then after that, express your heart. Express your soul to God. Spend time praying Fifth thing, spend time with others who love the sun, S-O-N. An hour or two a week is likely not going to bring sufficient nutrition to your needs. We need a lot of exposure to the sun to eliminate the sickness of our sin-sick souls. Our, Our flesh is weak and it finds strength in the refreshing power of the sun, Again, S-O-N, spending time with others who have had a lot of sun exposure, that they, they've been basking in the sunlight of the Son of God, and it reflects off of them, and, and you can be encouraged by their strength that they have found in the sun, and also their strength that they found in fighting against the schemes of the devil, the strength that they have found in fighting against the weakness of their own flesh, this is why community of, a community of believers is so important, so important to the life of a Christian. People who suffer from a vitamin D deficiency can develop very severe, serious medical conditions. So getting a proper dose of vitamin D is, is quite important to several things. It's essential for strong bones. It's, exen- it's essential for fighting fatigue. It's essential for fighting against depression, and it helps with joint and bone pain as well. Now, maybe you're thinking, maybe you don't spend enough time in the sun. That's why my shoulder hurts. Maybe. Having a right amount of vitamin D has also been known to help with the body's immune system, fighting against things. So getting the right amount of vitamin D is is very important for a person to maintain their physical health. What's the main source of vitamin D that we get? It's from the sun. Now, doctors recommend that a person should be exposed to the sun for at least 15 to 20 minutes, three times a week. 15 to 20 minutes, three times a week. 
So if you're currently in a place spiritually that you have just very little exposure to Jesus, of course you're unhealthy. Of course you're in pain. Of course this is happening. So what about this? What if you started this week taking the advice of doctors in relation to sunlight and applied it spiritually to your life, that you would spend at least 15 to 20 minutes, three days a week, with the sun. What would be different in your life? What could possibly happen to your, the state of your soul if you would just spend that kind of time with him? Now, I know the skeptical crowd as you're already saying, yeah, I've tried that. I've done that. I've, I've attempted. I've even done more than that, Pastor. I've spent seven days in a week and nothing seemed to change. Everything seemed to be the same. Nothing got any better. Well, that could possibly be, but also let me give you another potential of why things didn't get any better. Let me ask you this question. Was your exposure to the sun covered up by something else? Like, whenever, you know, we go outside, it's hot, and it has been hot lately, and we, we run underneath a tree or we find an umbrella, we find some sort of shade so that we're not actually in the sun. We're close to it, we're out in the elements, but we're not really in the sun. Have you been covering yourself up and only getting next to the sunlight, but not actually in the sunlight. Is this, what, is this what you've been doing? That you've been feeling the warmth of the sunlight, but you're not actually in the sunlight. You've remained safely under some, some sh- sort of, of shade, whether a, a tree, and again, this is all figurative language here. I think I do this whenever I come to God in my prayers and in my Bible study looking for quick fixes to my problems and not looking for Him. Do you do this? That you approach God in your prayers, in your study of Scripture, looking for what's the solution to my problem and not the Son. I, th- I think we do this quite often. We, we put some sort of shade over us because we have a mindset of, hey, I, I got I to find something here. Let me fix this problem. And I think this is like some sort of shade that has been put over our soul instead of just being exposed to the sun, merely wanting his stuff and not wanting him. This is covering yourself up from the exposure to the Son of God. If your approach to the sunlight has been to not really be exposed to him, you're doing it wrong. You you put some sort of shade over yourself. It may be you need to set your clock differently. Maybe you, you need to turn things off. Maybe you need to go to a different location in order to be really exposed to the S O N. Do something different. Don't look back at what you did before and say, ah, it didn't work. Yeah, you're saying to do these things, but ah, it didn't work. This is not mere pragmatism. This is an issue of your heart. What is the posture that you are taking when you approach him? 
Are you really stepping into the sun, or are you saying, yeah, that's kind of hot there. I'm going to stand over here. I'm going, to, I'm going to be under the shade. We need exposure to the sun. What are the results of this kind of sun exposure? Look back at verse 2. Look at the last part of verse 2. It says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I like the word in the NIV. If you have the NIV, I like the word better here. It's frolic. I love that word. Frolic. Stephen loves it too. He loves the frolic, don't you? Yeah. Now, the, the King James and the New King James, other, other translations, I think they miss it here in how they worded this because they, they just simply say, well, to grow up. I think you've missed the concept of what is being said here and the joy that is included in, in what is being communicated to these people and to us. It's, it's more than just merely growing up. Yes, it's part of that. Yes, it is growing up, but it's, it's joy. It's excitement. It's freedom. On, on our property, we have uh, three new baby calves. Well, they've They've been around a while, but they're still calves. I wouldn't say brand new. Now, it's a lot of fun just to go out and, and just watch them. We stand on the porch, and we can just see them out there frolicking in the pasture, running around, you know, headbutting each other and just stuff like that. It's just a lot of fun to watch them. And if you have had calves, you watch calves, like you know what I'm talking about, and just the, the excitement, the joy that you get just from watching them. They're, they're carefree. They're joyful. Now, the question is Why? Why are they this way? Well, you know, we, we don't know the psychology of, of cows. Um, we barely know the psychology of ourselves or people. And so why do they do this? Well, my assumption is two reasons. One, they're alive. Two, they're healthy. That's what we do know about them, right? Like they are alive and they're healthy. A sick calf does not act that way. A sick calf will not jump about a sick calf will lay around, but a healthy one, what will a healthy, well-fed calf do? It will act just like that. It will frolic. It will jump about. Let me ask you, Christian, which one are you? Are, are you the sick calf that lays about and remains miserable, or are you a healthy one? Are you leaping about? Are you a frolicker? You're like, Pastor, I haven't frolicked in years. <laughs> we'll work on that. Now understand, if you are sick spiritually, understand this. You will not feel like leaping about. And if you, if you are in that place right now, you're thinking that. I, I have no desire to frolic. So there would really be no reason for me just to tell you, stop it and get better, right? It's not going to do you any good for me to just say, hey, you're being dumb, move on. Even though that is true, because of what the Scripture tells us of who we are, that's not going to accomplish really anything. And so you will just remain miserable if I tell you, stop it, get better, get up. Your sickness of soul is still there. So what I want you to remember is that you need the sun, S-O-N. You need the sun to get better. Set your eyes 
Even in your your miserable state, even in your sickness of soul, set your eyes on the sun. Listen to Paul's advice, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Yes, things right now are hard. Things right now seem as though that there is not a future, there is not a hope. But Paul is saying, think on the future of hope that we have that is eternal. It's an eternal life that we're looking for. Look to the things that are not seen by human eyes. These are eternal things, things that really, really matter. Think of it like this. The more you look down, the more down you will be. The more you look up, the more up you will be. Have you been walking around with your head down? Christian, have you been looking at your state and how miserable you are, how sick you are, and you've been hiding yourself in the shade of someone else or something, and you haven't exposed yourself to the sun and looked up to the sun. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, frolic, for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Malachi, one of these prophets, they didn't like his words. They didn't like what he had to say. This advice that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians, Jesus gives here in Luke 6, This is the mindset we must have. We must look up to the sun. We must look to the future hope that we have. And Jesus promises something here in verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. There's a promise for you. There's something coming for you. It's good. And so you can rejoice now. Be joyful now. You have a reward. This is promised back in 3.16 of Malachi. The, the book of remembrance is written for those that are righteous. We should expect things to be hard here. Jesus says so. You should expect people to not like you very much. Jesus says so. But we should also remember that all of this, as Paul says, is momentary affliction. And it does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. I had, a, I had a former deacon of mine in my previous church that he was, he was a one-line machine. Like, he could give you a one-liner for almost anything. And he, he, he used to say a lot of things, but one thing I will never forget him saying is that God didn't save you and stick a lemon in your mouth. 
I'll never forget that. Because it's so true. He was right. God does not save you with the intention of making you miserable. That's not his purpose for you. His purpose is not to save you and be like, you know what, you're too happy. Limit. No, he, he saved you so that you will have joy and have it. Okay, some of you know. Abundantly. If you are a Christian and you are miserable in your faith, then here's the reality. The problem is not God. It is you. It has never been him. It never will be him. It will always be you. Why are you unhappy? Why are you miserable? Why do you feel these things? Not because God has not been good to you. It is not that he has some sort of flaw in his character, that he has some sort of flaw in his plan. The problem is us. It has always been us. So Christian, what do you do? Step into the sunlight. Step into an exposure of the sun. Now you already know that. You already know that to be true. Again, I'm not telling you anything new this morning. But you have a choice this morning. Are you going to stay there? Are you going to stay in that miserable state as some sick little calf hiding in the shade? Or are you going to take active steps to change? Pastor Matt Chandler, some of you know, he constantly says this saying. He says, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. It's okay to not be okay. Like, all of us as Christians should recognize that we're not okay. And that's okay, but it's not okay for us to stay in that state. Christian, it's not okay for you to stay in your sin, nor is it okay for you to remain miserable. Do something about it. Do something about it. You have a choice this morning. And the problem is, is not God. It's not that God has been unfaithful to you. It's not any of these things in which we hear in Malachi that's being accused of God. The problem is us. Back to the text, verse 3. It, it promises victory. Victory for the follower. Victory, victory for the righteous. But notice how they will be victorious. Notice how you will be victorious. It says, on the day when I act, the Lord is going to bring victory. Not you. You need to step into the sunlight. You need to bask in the sun. It is not your power. It is not you bringing some sort of victory or power over your giants or whatever. It is the Lord. He is the one that does this. It's not them. It's Him. It's not us. It's Him. This is good news. Because the things in which you're facing, you probably do see them as impossible you probably see them as, there's no way that I can overcome this. And that's true. The, the terrible cliche that Christians believe and Christians say is that God will never give you more than you can handle. Um, yes, every day he does. Why? Because you need him. If he wouldn't give you anything more than you can handle, why would you need him? 
That's silly. God, he's been constant. He's been consistent. He has been the source of grace. Go to him. Trust him. He will bring victory. At the end here, verses 4 through 6, it brings a close to the book. It brings a close to the idea of what they should be looking for, what they should be doing. Verse 4 tells us to remember the law. Remember what God has already instructed. Remember the statutes. Do these things. Then verses 5 and 6 says to look for someone. Look for Elijah. So this is how it ends. Verse 4 says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Remembering the law or the statutes of God help us to live holy lives before God and also before men. But the law cannot make us holy. All the law will do is condemn you. When you break it, you are condemned. So the only way in which you can be made holy before God, acceptable, pure before God is, is by the Lord himself, that the Lord himself would make you holy, and this happens by his grace. So remember the law. Remember the, the, the commands in which we have been given. We should follow those things, but there should also be an understanding that following the law is not accomplishing holiness on its own. I must be made that way, declared that way, and he is the one that does that. So your following of the law, it is reflective of something, though. It's reflective of your heart that has been changed in loving him. That's the first thing they are to, to do, they are to remember. Then 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the second charge for those who fear the Lord, those that, that want to follow God, those that are righteous, they are to look for Elijah. Now we've already said through the book of Malachi that this is um, John the Baptist before Jesus' coming. And we gather this from Matthew 17, verse 13, where the disciples, they understand Jesus to be speaking of John the Baptist. Now, John lived a very similar life like Elijah. Both of them rebuked kings. Both preached repentance. Both validated their message by signs and or miracles. John the Baptist did come in the spirit of Elijah. They are to look forward to this one. Now think about this. This is 400 years, 450 years before he actually shows up. So generationally, this needs to be passed down. Keep looking for this. And for us today, as we think on the second coming of Christ, look, look, look to the future. Verse 6 it says, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Verse 6, it tells us that there will be a great reconciliation to happen. Restoration. Now, how can this happen? How can fathers' hearts be changed to their children's hearts and children to their fathers? How, how, does, this, how does this work? Well, it's all a work of God. It's through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so the hearts of fathers and their children, they can be restored, they can be reconciled because of the reconciliation of Jesus. He sets the standard and the tone for us as believers as we think on reconciliation. 
Listen to what Paul says again out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means living a life of repentance. It means being humble. It means that a real disciple of Jesus Christ are those who desire or have a heart for reconciliation. Reconciliation with each other, and most importantly, a reconciliation with God. We are, as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. So, if we are that, we should probably act like that, right? And what do the ambassadors of Christ do? They seek reconciliation. Reconciliation with each other and helping others come to reconciliation with God. Those who fear the Lord... They deeply care about reconciliation. They deeply care about their own reconciliation with God and others' reconciliation with God and being reconciled with one another. So the resounding gong of Malachi for the people of Israel here, I think is to hear for the next 400 to 450 years, God is not done with you. God is not done with the world. But you must repent and you must follow the Lord. Repentance, what is it? It's a a turning away from something. So sin, right? But it's also turning to something. And who is that something? It is the Lord. It is the Son. It is stepping into the exposure of the Son. So you, you reject the sin in which you were doing. You turn from that and you embrace or turn your face to the Son of God. You might have quit that sin that has been dragging you down and your family down and those around you down. But if you haven't turned to the Lord, if you haven't put your face to the Lord, you have not repented. You've only exchanged one thing for another, and those things have only been sinful. Yeah, but I do these things now and they're healthy for me. I eat better. So, if you haven't turned your face to Christ... You haven't really repented. And the only way that you can find ultimate joy, ultimate frolicking and freedom, it is only found in trusting the Son of God. Stepping into the sun, stepping into that sunlight of the Son of God, you need to turn from your sin, turn your face to the sun, and enjoy, enjoy the sunlight. As we close today, let me... You can just 
call you again to do what I've been saying the whole time. Step into the sunlight. Step into the sunlight. Let me give you three things. One, maybe you need to confess your sin. And that's your first exposure to the sun is is confessing your sin to God. Second of all, you're remembering what has been accomplished by the sun, by God, in his consistency, in his grace. And third of all, that you would look to your eternal future. Stop looking down and look up. Let's spend some time this morning in reflection, in prayer. And again, if you want to come and pray at the front, I invite you to do that. If you want to pray with somebody next to you, do that as well. I mean, you don't have to make it real awkward, but you can pray with somebody. If you want to talk later about this joy and freedom that I'm talking about and this, this happiness of soul which we need, and I invite you to do that as well. Let's spend some time this morning.